Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The first thing that I want to do is turn around this disgusting sense in many people in AI that making counterfeit people is really cool. That this is, this is artistic, this is creative, this is fantastic. And I want them to think, no, we're making counterfeiting machines. We're, we're making machines to dupe people. We're, we're making it easier for bad actors to take away the life savings of little old ladies. We have to create a sense of deep personal responsibility in the people that are doing this. That's the philosopher Dan Dennett. After a lifetime of exploring the nature of human consciousness and decades of following the evolution of artificial intelligence, he's become deeply alarmed. In a recent essay in The Atlantic, he wrote about the threat posed by what he calls counterfeit people. Those AI chatbots that sound like us and may soon even look like us, yet possess minds of their own that even their creators don't understand. I can't wait to talk to you about this because I feel, I feel that we're meeting at a turning point in history. I think so. Just a couple of days ago, as we record this, you signed an open letter that was one sentence long, but scary in that one sentence. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. That's a, that's a really strong statement. In your mind, are we, in fact, is humanity facing extinction from AI? I think something like that is not just possible, but possible in the near future unless we act very fast. And the, the way it's going to happen is not because AI is going to be super intelligent, AGIs that enslave us or anything like that. It's that the existing, really quite stupid, uncomprehending systems are still very good at fooling people. They're not agents. They're just counterfeit people. And they are irresistible to many people. And it's going to be very hard for people to know what to trust if these things proliferate. And the main problem is they can proliferate. It's all too easy for software to proliferate. It's the whole digital world is designed to make copying very easy. So we're going to have... Uh, the replication of many of these things, and they'll mutate as they replicate, and they will get better and better and better at 
of course, manipulating us into replicating them. And we won't know if we're talking to a machine or to a person. That's right. I've read your saying that it might reach the point where we can't tell if we're talking to the real person unless we're in face-to-face contact with them. Yeah, yeah. Because they can fake videos, they can fake voices. Everything from spreading misinformation and dividing us with chaotic misinformation the way social media does only, on, as they say, on steroids. Yeah. Because it can yeah. get into everything. Exactly, yes. And how do you think we can prevent people from being exploited by counterfeit people produced by AI? Well, roughly the same way we uh, prevent people from being exploited by counterfeit money. Of course, <laughs> currency is disappearing fast. So this is a problem which is almost obsolete. It's almost extinct, the problem of counterfeit money. Yeah. Um, to be replaced by, uh, you know, counterfeit uh, Bitcoin and counterfeit who knows what else. But it is possible to build watermarking systems, systems that can put a unobtrusive brand, in effect, on any product, any digital file, that can be read by other software that will say fake, 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 in the same way that copy machines disable themselves if you try to copy currency. On. Yeah, I didn't realize they did that. I read that in one of your papers. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's mainly for color copiers, and it's a fairly recent development, but um, you can't use a high-quality color scanner to scan most currencies um, because the scanner makers don't want to be responsible mm. for making counterfeits. And the thing is that these companies, if we drive home to them, that they're going to be held responsible for any chaos that results from the use of their products, their underwriters, their insurance people are going to be on their tails to make sure that they cover themselves. And that's actually a lot of what we're seeing right now from the big companies, from, from Microsoft, from Google, uh, from OpenAI. They want regulation because they want protection from liability suits that will make the billion-dollar settlement in the uh, voting machines trial look like peanuts. Right. Of course, the people who make the machines, the, the chatbots and so on, the AIs, want regulation. They do. Because they don't want to be responsible. On the other hand, the thing that they've made, the AI, could develop a mind of its own in the sense of avoiding the watermark restriction. Well, yes and no. I mean, the good news is there's an arms race that's starting, and it's technically possible for the defense to play a pretty good game and it'll get better. To be cynical about it, now that big money is involved, now that very, very, very deep pockets realize they've got a problem, uh, I think regulation will come. I think we can, we can make it less and less acceptable, well, socially, personally, for people to engage in it. The first thing that I wanna do is turn around this disgusting sense in many people in AI 
that making counterfeit people is really cool. That mm. this is this is artistic. This is creative. This is fantastic. And I want them to think, no, we're making counterfeiting machines. We're we're making machines to dupe people. We're we're making it easier for bad actors to take away the life savings of little old ladies. We have to create a sense of deep personal responsibility in the people that are doing this. If we can get these people to realize that they're bragging and enjoying the fact that they're making counterfeiting machines, what if we said, look, do you, do you really want to make assault rifles? Do you really want to make biological warfare weapons? Because they're uh, capable of doing that. Yeah, you can do it. Do you, is that what you want to spend your time doing? And if you don't, then sober up and help us create the cooperative agreements and self-regulation that will get this under control. The, the biological warfare scientists did a pretty darn good job of getting together and making really, really strict rules uh, restricting how how dangerous biological research was done. And I think we have to realize that this AI research is just as dangerous. We don't have to worry about a high school kid building a nuclear bomb in his garage. Much too expensive, much too fancy, the science and the technology, and of course, the, getting the fissionable material. That's, thank goodness we don't have to worry about homemade nuclear weapons. But we do have to worry about homemade chatbots. I think it's kind of amazing to realize how much of artificial intelligence has already entered our lives. Oh, yes. Weapons that make a decision at the last moment to kill or not to kill without any reference to the, to the person who sent it out. Self-driving cars. I heard a horrible story from a friend the other night who was driving for the first time with a friend. And her friend who had the wheel, didn't have the wheel. Her friend had her iPhone, was reading the iPhone instead of driving the car. And, mm -hmm. and, and, the, <laughs> yep. and the passenger said, what are you doing? You look at the road. What are you? She said, no, no, I don't have to worry about it. The car's driving itself. And just then they were cut off by another car narrowly missed an accident. Mm. But AI makes decisions so fast, there, I, I think it's debatable about whether a human can intervene even if they have a kill switch. I think we have to take seriously that uh, keeping us in control is uh, a much more complicated matter than uh, we often think. I, I like to point out to... Uh, audiences when I'm talking about this. And I've been talking with, uh, you know, te technical teams at Google and in the Air Force and in the Pentagon. And uh, uh, I say, look, what would you do if you learned that another person had control of an on-off switch, which could just turn you off and obliterate you? What would you do? What would your highest priority be? And they think about it and they say, well, so finding out who that person is and getting control of the on-off switch, I would, that would be my, 
my highest priority task is wresting control from the one that can turn me off. I said, right. And if we make an AGI, that will be its highest priority too. Because <laughs> they'll be, they'll have that motivation and they'll be smarter than we are. And when you talk about military engagement, you make me think of what I read that Putin is supposed to have said that whoever leads in artificial intelligence rules the world. I don't know if he said that or if that's just more fake misinformation. Exactly. I, I, but I don't want to be in the same room with Putin to find out if he really said it. No, no, <laughs> nor do I. Um, the people in cybersecurity are taking this all very seriously. I met with some groups some years ago when I was out at the Santa Fe Institute that were dealing with some of the issues, and I got myself pickled with anxiety <laughs> as a result of, of that, spending a few days with them. Uh, Why, what made you anxious? Well, I'm just going to tease you a little bit. I came up with an idea, which I presented to them, and they all said, oh, that's really scary. And I said, yeah, and it would be not that hard to do, would it? And they said, no, it wouldn't. And I'm not going to tell you what that idea was. You don't want somebody to do it. I'm going to keep that one to myself. Now, you know, you've described my fearful, dangerous idea. I hope you can disabuse me of this. If AIs get really smart and maybe even collaborate and have as their main goal their own preservation, what's to stop them from developing their own language to communicate internally and keep us out of the loop completely? Oh, sure. No, no, um, nothing would prevent that at all. Well, we're, we're a little late, so good night, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, no, I think, I think that's... That's part of the real possibility. Oh, I was really hoping you were going to tell me why that wouldn't happen. Well, my main hope now is that in the last few weeks, enough of us have given enough people the heebie-jeebies <laughs> so that they will get serious about getting some regulation going now. Um... One of the remarkable things that was said in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on this the other day was uh, when several of the senators said, here's an industry coming to us asking to be regulated. That's never happened before. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, right, and take that seriously. They're asking for a very good reason. And, of course, it's very disheartening when you see the... Uh, disabilities of the current Congress uh, and, and our whole political situation, uh, are we going to be up to doing the sort of cooperative, collaborative work that we need to do to get, to get a handle on this? I don't know, but I think it's, it should be a very high priority. Maybe you can explain something to me. I don't quite understand, on the one hand, asking to be regulated. They want regulation, but they keep making bots seem more and more human. For instance, yeah, 
The, the, the race is on to see who can make the best conversationalist, the most appealing person to us humans. I, I asked GPT just today, why do you hallucinate? Why do you make say things that aren't true? And to make me understand that I had to be skeptical of what the bots were saying, GPT said, it's important to understand that AI models like me are tools created by humans and should be used with caution. Like me, mine, I, these are all personal words. These identify him as a person or it as a person. Yeah. This is my line about the intentional stance. It's we've evolved to treat anything complex as, as, a, as a person if we can. It's a great shortcut. It's a great instinct to have to adopt the intentional stance to treat something as a person. We're suckers for it. And uh, it's remarkably easy. Um, Joe Weizenbaum, the late Joe Weizenbaum, creator of the ELISA program, was shocked. His program was, by today's standards, hilariously simple. It modeled itself after a psychiatry session. And, so. and it, it had almost nothing it could do of any important. But there were students at MIT where he taught who played with this on a terminal, a public terminal in, back in the days of mainframes. And they were objecting when he was looking at the day's interactions because they were he was violating medical confidentiality. They were pouring their guts out. To the fake psychiatrist. So we've known for a long time that people are suckers for the imitation game. Yeah. And we now have to help people. We have to protect them from their own generous tendency and get them to recognize that they're easily fooled. I've been, I've been having a little a mischievous fun lately. Actually, I don't know how much mischievous fun I've been having. But where I've been in email with a couple of people at Google who are part of the Google ethics team. And one, they wrote a response to my Atlantic article uh, about counterfeit people. And one of the responses was sort of defensive and uh, talking about the creative side of what these programs could do. And I wrote back and said, nice try, X. But from your answer, it's clear that you're just an LLM, just a large language model, uh, trying to ingratiate yourself with me. Goodbye. <laughs> and she hasn't answered back. And I think she knows that I'm just not going to trust her in the future because mm -hmm. maybe I'll be talking to one of her creations instead of her. When we come back from our break, I talk with Dan Dennett about his idea of consciousness, that it allows us to cherry-pick from among the options we face every moment of our lives, even the options of the choice of words I'm going to use to end this sentence. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. 
You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dan Dennett. But what about something positive? I think you have a, you have a book coming out in the fall. Call, is it called I've Been Thinking? Yeah, it's, it's my intellectual memoir. It's, a, it's about how lucky I've been. I was thinking the other day that maybe I, the title should have been We've Been Thinking because it's been my great good fortune since I was a, an undergraduate to have these wonderful interlocutors and mentors and teachers and uh, people who both taught me things, tutored me in things that I needed tutoring in. They were my guides and my, and my critics. Mm. And my golly, I've been lucky in that regard. And uh, so this is a book about how if you, if you get enough smart people around you, you can do some pretty serious thinking. In the years you've been studying AI, have you thought differently at all based on what you've seen in AI's thinking that might affect oh, gosh, how, yes. you, how you regard our own thinking? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, I, I guess I would say um, I'm, I'm notorious in many quarters of philosophy for being, you know, the AI philosopher, the philosopher who, who says, look, we're robots made of robots made of robots made of robots. That's what we are. No, there's no magical mystery stuff in there. Um, I remember when you interviewed Rod Brooks on the COG Project right. many years ago, and I was there watching, and at one time you were standing with Rod and COG. COG was a robot. Yes. And you asked a question, and COG whoop, turned his head to look at you. <laughs> I must have jumped. And it rendered you speechless. <laughs> I was on the COG project because Rod Brooks said explicitly, we want to implement the multiple drafts model of consciousness, my model of consciousness, in COG. We think that's the right way to go. And I said, great. 
I'm your guy. I'll, I'm going to join your team. Uh, and that was one of life's great adventures because here I was surrounded by some of the smartest young AI and roboticist people in the world working on a project with them. And they're still, some of them are still my uh, close advisors and friends. So that sounds like trying out your view of how the human thinks on a robot. Yeah. Has it gone the other way for you? Have you said, wait a minute, maybe people are doing it the way the robot is doing it? Oh, yeah. Um, well, we are cherry pickers. That's what consciousness is. Meaning what? Well, cherry picking is, is searching over the candidates and selecting the best, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it's, and it's a scientific sin if you cherry pick your data. But it's what, it only makes sense if you're picking cherries off a tree. You pick the best ones. You don't pick the duds. So our lives, and actually the lives of all living things, can be viewed as uh, the attempt to select the useful stuff from the stuff that's on offer. So even in it's the all, conversation, uh, I right now I'm, yeah. I'm I have ten things that I could say, and I have to yep. cherry pick the one that's most useful for the conversation. Yeah, not only that, yeah, not only that, but th this is going on all the time. Even even when you're when you're talking to a salesperson in a store, all the time, wh what words come out of your mouth? The words that come out of your mouth are words that have been semi-understood blurts issued by an unconscious part of your brain, and they're all competing to get said. Mm. And it's not as if you are a Cartesian ego sitting in the control room and judging. The judging process is another cherry-picking process. It's there's a battle going on, there's a competition going on, and when you're really under fairly severe pressure to say just what you mean, I like the way I am right now. Mm -hmm. I'm picking my words carefully. I'm, I'm actually conscious of not settling for second-rate versions of what I'm trying but to say. But most of the time you're saying it's a blurt. We don't. It, we 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 do the cherry picking at an unconscious level. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. And most of the time, it works just great. You you get through the day. You you satisfy the people that that you deal with. You buy what you want in the store. You you order in the restaurant. You make friendly, lovable, wonderful conversation with your friends, and it doesn't. You're not, it's not a strain, but sometimes, sometimes the strain is visible. And I suppose in philosophy, especially where we're, um, uh, philosophers are nitpickers about words. And so we tend to, uh, rehearse our utterances a little more than other people do, I think. Uh, but it's always, the process is always the same. And, Sometimes what comes out of your mouth is almost immediately you say, oh, no, I didn't really mean to say that. <laughs> somebody did. <laughs> but somebody did, and it was, it was my mouth that it came out of. Uh, but, but, oh, I regret saying that. That's, that's one that you try to put back in and 
run through the mill a few more times before you say, on the other hand, sometimes those blurts are the key. Sometimes you blurt out something which is just what you need to break up a, a, a little log jam in your thought. My advice to my students, when a student comes to me uh, with a big idea for a paper, they're just afraid they might be wrong, you know? Mm. And I say, look, blurt it out, then you have something on the page to fix. Exactly, exactly. And, and uh, don't be afraid of, of making mistakes, at least then you have something you might be able to fix. I almost get the idea that as these thoughts are battling priority and which one will come out of your mouth, that it's a little like perhaps what AI does in choosing the most probable thing to come next. Oh, yeah. Which oh, is yeah. why and we say cliches or creative I new ideas because yeah. it's the same process of what's most likely associated with what was yeah. just said. A, a, cliche, a, a cliche is just a, a bon mot that's getting shopworn. Hmm. It wouldn't be said if people didn't want to say it. And it gets overused and time to find some new thing to say. Well, we're, as I knew it would, our conversation promises to go on until, until it gets dark out. But we always end every show with seven quick questions. Not necessarily what we've been talking about, but generally to do with communication. You game? Yeah. What do you wish you really understood I wish I really understood quantum mechanics. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I can fake a good game, but you have to marinate in the math for a long time to really do it right. So, you know, when when people start wielding theories involving quantum mechanics, I sort of sit back and say, geez, I hope this goes away soon because I, I can't. <laughs> I can't play this game. I don't know how to play this game. Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Ooh. It's hard. Mm. Um, sometimes you ask them a question. Mm. I'm often misquoted as saying, there's no polite way of telling somebody they base their life on an illusion. But what I actually wrote and said is, there's no polite way to ask somebody, have you considered that you may have devoted your life to an illusion? And doesn't, they're both pretty impolite, but sometimes you got to ask. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Um, I can't think of any in particular. I've been asked, Lots of very strange questions <laughs> <laughs> by people over the years. I think that's part of being a philosopher. Okay, how, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, um, I do. I do have a few tricks for that. Oh, good. One of them was due to my mentor Gilbert Ryle. And I learned this actually from Isaiah Berlin, who told me. I didn't, Ryle didn't tell me himself. 
Berlin did. So I've given a talk, and there's a speaker who raises the so-called question, except it isn't a question, it's a harangue. And everybody in the room wants, wants the haranguer to stop. And what you do is you wait patiently for a little break, and then you say, I expect there's a great deal in what you say. Next question. <laughs> that, that's, that's definitive. I was in that situation once, and I made the mistake of, after the long harangue went on for a couple of minutes, I said, is there a question in there? And he said, yes. Don't you agree? Yeah, well. He had me. I mean, the, the British use of the verb expect is very nice there. You're, you're not agreeing that there's... Yes, oh, I, say, expect. I expect there's a great deal in what you say. Yeah, that's, that, that's, I, did, I missed the uh, value of expect. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Now, let's say you're at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? Well, that's a good question. I guess you, uh, what I do usually is ask them what they do. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you get an answer that makes your head snap. <laughs> <laughs> what gives you confidence? My friends, my worldwide community of fellow inquirers, investigators that I've been in contact with for years, some of my some of them become sort of honorary family members. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, anytime they want, come on by, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've been very fortunate to have, they're not just fans. They tend to like my line on many things, but they're also really good critics, and they know that I prize them for their attempts to set me straight when they do. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Quine's Word and Object. Willard Van Orman Quine when I was a freshman in college. And what was the name of the book? Wait a minute, no. Oh. That book, I didn't read that till the next year when I was a sophomore. <laughs> I read his book from a logical point of view. I was... I was sitting in the math library at Wesleyan University, drowning in logic. They thought I was a math prodigy. I wasn't. And they put me in this seminar, advanced sort of tutorial in mathematical logic, and I was floundering. And in the math library, I found Quine's book called From a Logical Point of View, which is a deftly written book with short essays, wonderful chapters. And I stayed up all night long reading the book, and the next morning I sent a letter to try to transfer to Harvard so I could work with Klein. Oh, that really did change your life. It did, yeah. Well, I get the impression that your passion about AI is going to help change a lot of our lives, just thinking about it as the threat that it seems to be. Well, I hope so. I mean... I got plenty of other things to do, but right now I'm pouring a lot of effort into keeping people's feet to the fire on this and fanning the flames. 
Well, thank you for that, Dan, and thank you for being on the show. I, t- I really thank appreciate you it. because you're helping me do that. Yeah. Good. Great to see you again. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Daniel Dennett is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Philosophy at Tufts University. His books include Consciousness Explained, Darwin's Dangerous Idea, Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon, and From Bacteria to Bach, The Evolution of Minds. His forthcoming memoir is called I've Been Thinking. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next week, executive producer Graham Shedd and I will look ahead to our next season of Clear and Vivid with previews of some of my conversations with our guests. And the week after that, August 8th, I'll be talking with actor, writer, comedian Robert Klein. Robert and I met a long time ago when he was just beginning his extraordinary career as a comedian. And over the years, I think we've shared the idea that laughter is not a trivial thing. I remember as a kid seeing a comedian come up to the small hotel I was working in as a busboy. He came in his Cadillac. He did 40 minutes and people were hysterical laughing. And for that time, they forgot their disappointment in their marriage, their health, their children, their life, whatever it was. And I I still think while it cures nothing directly, therapeutically, it has tremendous value in, in a release for life. Join us next week for a preview of our coming season and the following week for Robert Klein on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.